Well, you probably noticed from my accent that I'm from the South. <laughs> There's a, actually a little bit of truth in that. We live in Charlotte, North Carolina, so it's the South. And I was born and raised in the Philippines, which is south of the equator. Have you heard of the Philippines? Good, good. And I guess one of your members here have been a missionary to the, to the Philippines. So today's topic of the Truth Revealed Conference is general revelation, the cults, and actually added other worldviews, breaking the stalemate. Well, if you have played chess before, or even if not, stalemate meaning that you cannot actually move one way or the other because there's no more move. In analogy, when we're talking to the cults, when they come in, uh, they would bring a verse that Jesus is not God, that he is only a man. They would put in maybe John 17, 3, that the Father is the only true God, or that Jesus is a God, or that he is just a man. Uh, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So they say Jesus is not God, he's only a man. Well, we also come up with our verses. As Christians, John 20, 28, uh, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Uh, John 8, 58, when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, which is in reference to Exodus 3, 14, when Yahweh told Moses that I am who I am. So we, we go back and forth, like a Bible uh, verse, ping pong. So there's a stalemate. So with general revelations, perhaps we can break that stalemate. So knock, knock. What do you say? Who's there? J. J who? J.W. was Jehovah's Witnesses. So have you ever been knocked on, on the door by a Jehovah's Witnesses on a Saturday morning? Did you let them in or maybe talk to them? No, because uh, I used to be like that because, well, Maybe they get to say something about the Bible that I have no answer, so I was a little bit hesitant. But then again, when I learned about general revelations, I learned to just ask a few questions. And we'll get to that a little bit later. What I'm going to do is perhaps I can justify why general revelation is, is also a way to know about God. Now, we have what we call special revelation, and we also have general revelation. Special is the Bible. General revelation is what's been created. It's just like special grace and general grace. Special grace is being saved by grace through faith in Christ. General grace is for everyone in the world. Even the, the unbelievers get rain. Even the unbelievers can breathe. So they have oxygen. So that's general grace. We have special grace. We have special revelation. And we have general revelation. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses comes in, or any other cult, they would say, Trinity, the doctrine that is unique to Christianity, is a contradiction. Have you ever, ever heard about that? That objection? That it's a contradiction? And how do we respond to that? How do we respond when they say Trinity is a contradiction? Well, I'll give you a tip. Any other, any statement or proposition, don't just fall into it. People will say, there's no God. People will say, Jesus is not God. People will say, atheists would say that the Bible is corrupted. Well, 
Ask them, what do you mean by corrupted? What do you mean by God? So when they say the Trinity is a contradiction, you ask the question, what do you mean by Trinity? What do you mean by contradiction? First, it is good to, to make them explain what they are talking about. Maybe they don't understand the Trinity. Maybe they don't understand the law of non-contradiction. And the other thing that you can ask is, how did you come to that conclusion? Because a statement is just a statement unless there are premises how you can get to the conclusion. This, 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 therefore, God doesn't exist. This, 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 therefore, God exists. This, 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 therefore, the Trinity is a contradiction. They cannot just say that. They have to justify it by putting up an argument. So this is a good question to ask. How did you come to that conclusion? So any objection to Christianity, let them explain what they're talking about. And how did they come to that conclusion? Now, for young folks, these are what we call memes, internet memes. Atheists, anti-Christians would usually get a picture and put some wordings on it. And when this one, it says, God sacrificed himself to himself to save us from himself. Totally believable. It's, they're trying to ridicule the Christian faith because they say, Christianity doesn't make sense. How can, how can the same God will sacrifice himself to himself to save us from himself? Well, I submit to you that they, they really do not understand what Christianity is, who God is. Now, the law of non-contradiction. It says that two opposite statements cannot be both true at the same time and at the same sense. So is Trinity really a contradiction? Now, uh, that uh, meme that I showed you before, it's actually what we call a, a straw man fallacy, meaning the critics would just bring in something that we really don't believe. It says there, God sacrificed himself. Well, the triune God, the Trinity, did not sacrifice himself because he is God and he cannot die. The triune God cannot die. He lives for all eternity. But who sacrificed himself? It's the Son who added the human nature. Uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is in perfect harmony from all eternity. They have this eternal, infinite loving relationship. They don't need us, the creation. But because God is good, He created us. And when He created us, He gave us uh, rationality. Rationality to, to make a choice between right and wrong, and we have a free will to make a choice what is right and wrong. And people, us, chose what was wrong. So we sinned, we cannot get to God. So God said, well, we cannot, they cannot save themselves, so... They sent God the Son, who added the human nature. He's the one who died. So it's not the triune God who died, but it's the Son who have a human nature, and the human nature is for what? For shedding of the blood. He, he is the one who died. So this meme is actually a straw man, meaning the atheist or the skeptics doesn't understand what we believe, and what they get is they bring a straw man, and that's what they they beat up. 
Well, what about uh, the, same, the same objection that Trinity is a contradiction, and this is what they are saying. Statement number one, this is what they say we believe. God is one, and God is not one, because we believe that there are three persons in the Gahadid, but in their thinking, the cults would say that we believe that there is one God and there is three God. And they say it's a contradiction. It is true. That's a contradiction. God is one. God is not one. It's a total contradiction because these are two opposite statements. But what is a trin the Trinity? The Trinity is not one God and three gods. The Trinity is not one person and three persons. Those are contradictions. The Trinity is God is one in nature and three in persons. Therefore, it's not a contradiction because, statement number one, God is one in nature. Statement number two, God is not one in persons. So two different sense. One is talking about nature. One is talking about persons. The other thing is for us Christians, when we see some, some kind of an objections, especially when the critics come in and they say that there are so many verses in the Bible that contradict each other, what we need to do is actually make distinctions. That's one of the things that we need to remember that, hey, maybe there is something there that are not on the same sense. For example, the two verses right there in Exodus 32, it says, Then the Lord relented and did not bring to his people the disaster he had threatened. Another, another verse says, For I, the Lord, do not change. So in one hand, it's saying that the Lord relented. Relenting meaning he was so angry and then his anger lessened. So there was a change from very angry to less angry and maybe not angry anymore. So God changed from being angry and not to being angry. But also another verse say he doesn't change. So which one is true? Can God change or can God not change? Statement number one, God can change. Statement number two, God cannot change from those two verses. So they seem to be a contradiction, right? God can change, God cannot change. Now, what, what is the uh, consequence to us if God can change? Well, isn't it that God promises eternal life? Well, if God can change, what's the guarantee that at the end of the days, God would say, well, you know, I promise you eternal life, but I changed my mind. So if God can change, he can change in the future. But I submit to you that it's, it's statement number two is the true one, that God doesn't change. Whoever he is, he is unchangeable, he is immutable. But it seems like there are contradictions, but are they really a contradiction? Well, let's take a look at again the law of non-contradiction. Two opposite statement, statements cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense. So the question you ask when you see two Bible verses that seem to be contradicting each other, 
This is the question you ask. Are they in the same sense? Are they in the same sense? Is Exodus 32, 14 and Malachi 3, 6 the same sense? No, they are not. Because one is literal, one is metaphorical. For us Christians, the, uh, the classical view of God is immutability. That God does not change. But what about the verse uh, on the top that God relented? Well, it could be a metaphor. Just like Jesus saying, I'm a door. But does Jesus have a hinge and a doorknob? No, he does not. It's a metaphor. It's the same thing with this. It seems like that God changed his mind. But probably ask the question, well, before I was a sinner and God, God's wrath is upon me. I'm going to hell. But then again, I met this missionary, shared me the gospel. I understood that Christ is the only way, that is my only way to heaven. So I surrendered my life to Christ. Now I'm a born-again Christian. And God forgives me. Isn't it that God changed his mind from sending me to hell and sending me to heaven? Isn't it a change? Well, no. Because God is always wrathful to sin and always gracious to repentance. That's who he is. He always is. So what we were here, we were sinful, God is wrathful to us, and who made the change? We did. We were sinners. We, we learned about the gospel. We, we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we went over here, being repentant. And God is always gracious to a repentant heart. So God didn't change, we changed. So one of them is literal, the, the second one, and the first one is a metaphor. But, they would, but there is another group of evangelicals called uh, uh, open theism. They would say, well, how do you know that it's not the other way around? That the bottom one is the uh, metaphorical, and the first one is the literal. We cannot, we cannot tell by exegeting from the scriptures. We cannot tell. But general revelation, which we're going to talk about, would help us to do that. Now, what happens? Today is September 25, right? What happens three months from now? Christmas. So, advance Merry Christmas to all of you. Now, you know, in the Philippines, once the month is start ending with a bear, like September, they start playing Christmas songs. Ask uh, Pastor uh, Dean. He knows that at, in September, they're already playing Christmas songs. Now, so we talk about Christmas as well today, since it's September. The incarnation, right? What happened in Christmas time, the incarnation? John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. If we look at the context from John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word was God, and that Word became flesh. So if you put them together, the Word, who was God, became flesh. That's the incarnation. Now, you see the Word became what does it indicate? It indicates change, 
God became man. There was a change there. So, objections from the cults. The concept of incarnation grossly violates what? The doctrine or the biblical teaching concerning the immutability of God. That's a very good objection. They are saying that if, if God, if Jesus, the Word, became man, there was a change, incarnation. And that's true. Because if, if Jesus, God the Son, didn't become man, we don't have the shedding of the blood. But at the same time, wouldn't that also violate the immutability of God, that there was a change? So, what are we going to do? Is it a contradiction? Now, I've been saying about contradiction, God's word cannot be contradicting each other. Why? Because God is the God of order. God is perfect. There is no contradiction in himself. So if there is a contradiction in the Bible, which is the word of God, what does it say about God? Because we believe the Bible is the word of God. And if there's a contradiction in the Bible, which is the word of God, then there must be contradiction in God. So there cannot be a contradiction in the Bible. But if you take a look at these two passages, the word became flesh, so God became man. There was a change. In Malachi 3.6, God cannot change. What do we do? So what was the question you asked when you see something about this? The question is, are they in the same sense? A law of non-contradiction. Two opposite statements cannot be both true at the same time and in the same sense. So perhaps they are not in the same sense. So, question. Is human beings, we human beings, are we by nature good or are we by nature bad? We're by nature bad, right? Okay. Anybody say we're good? Okay. Are human beings by nature good or are human beings by nature bad or not good? But what about this verse? In Genesis 1, God saw that all the universe, everything that's including you and me, that all that he has made, and it was very good. So God is saying we're good. At the same time, Paul, Romans 3.12, saying, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. So are we really good or are we not good? Two passages in the scriptures is saying, one is saying human beings are by nature good because God saw everything, it was good. And another verse is saying human beings by nature is not good, bad. Another contradiction, right? What was the question again that we need to ask? If we think there is a contradiction, it seems contradiction in the Bible, are they in the same sense? No, they are not. Human beings are 
the, take away the by there. Uh, uh, human beings are metaphysically good. By nature, metaphysically, human beings are good. And by nature, by moral nature, human beings are not good. So metaphysically, and I'll explain to that later, metaphysically we are good, but morally we are not good. Metaphysically meaning, because God is perfect, everything He's created is perfect. Before the fall, everything was perfect, including us. We are good, and one of the good things that God gave to us as a part of our perfection is what? That separates us from animal kingdom. Rationality and free will. By rational, we can know things as they are, and we make can make choices. If something is good, if something is bad. And because of that, we get that free will to do, to do bad, we do the bad things, that's why I become, we were morally corrupted. So metaphysically, the God wired us, the God, the way God created us, we are good. Metaphysically, we have, rational, we have rationality, we have free will. Because God is a perfect being, is a good God, created things that are good, but the free will and rationality that he gave us, which is part of the perfection we have, because God cannot make us robots, not give us free will. God, God doesn't want to create beings that are just going to follow him by him just, just making them robots to love him by force. Uh, force love is a contradiction. So he gave us the free will to choose to follow God, to surrender to Christ, or not. Because we chose to sin, that becomes what? Then we are morally not good. So, special revelation, the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed, and uh, general revelation, which is what? Creation. Now, there are three purposes, as far as I can find in the Bible, about general revelation. Number one is to glorify God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hand. What else? General revelation is to make God known by all people so that, so that no one can claim excuse. Now, have you ever tried to share a gospel or you know of a missionary sharing the gospel or maybe uh, trying to share the gospel on the internet and they will say, when you say that Jesus is the only way, John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the only way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. So they need Christ. But what is the objection? Well, what about those who never heard of Christ or have never heard of the gospel? Or I've never read the Bible. Isn't it unfair that when they get to the judgment day, they say, well, God, I know you're all-powerful and all-knowing, but I never know about the gospel. I never know about Christ. So it's, it's unfair that you will not accept me to my, nobody witness to me. 
So it's unfair that uh, you cannot accept me in your presence. Well, that's not actually true. Because there are other witnesses besides the one-on-one -on -one witnessing. There is what we call the witness from what has been made with his creation. That's Romans 1.20. We'll get there. And also, the witness of the heart's written law, which is conscience. So there's the witness of creation, and there is the witness of conscience. So, the witness of creation, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and the divine nature are being clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Clearly seen. Invisible, clearly seen. How can you see the invisible? But Paul is saying, yes, you can see the invisible by what? By inference. From what has been made, creation, so that what? Men are without excuse. So there's no excuse not to know that God exists. And when the folks that see that God exists, who will be in awe of His majesty because He can create the vast universe, they would fear Him. They would be in awe of Him. They would respond to that God must exist. There must be some kind of a being that put this all together. When they respond to that, they will also respond to the witness of conscience. The requirements of the law are written on the hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Romans 2.15. There's the witness of creation, there's a witness of conscience. But you probably ask, well, is that biblical? Well, first of all, that's what Paul said, that there are two witnesses, creation and conscience, but there's also an example in the Bible, the case of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And what happens after that? Angel of God showed up. Angel instructed Cornelius to invite Peter. Peter had a vision. Peter went to Cornelius. Cornelius explained to Peter the reason Peter was invited. Then, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So there is a fear of God in awe of who God is and there's also that free will to do what is right and to do what is wrong. So those from every nation anywhere in the world all people will have the witness of creation and the witness of conscience. Whether they are from the jungles of Brazil or the mountains of the Himalayas or the desert of Africa or behind the Iron Curtain in North Korea, they all have creation and they all have conscience. If they say creation, they will fear Him, they will be in awe of Him when they respond to that. They will also respond to the witness of conscience and do what is right and do what is wrong. If they cannot respond to the witness of creation, if they suppress it, because Paul said in Romans 
before Romans 1.20, people suppress the truth. They don't want the truth. Why? Why are some people suppressing the truth? They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to be a God who exists who are making them accountable. If they respond to that, they will respond to that with a subconscious, gospel comes. John 3, 16, maybe a missionary will come. That's what happens to Cornelius. Peter shares the good news, and he said, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of the peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard, and they were baptized. So Cornelius, who feared God and do what is right, witness of creation, witness of conscience, gospel came. And the third reason for general revelation is to confirm the essentials of the faith given to us by special revelation. Uh, using the same verse, what has been made? If we, uh, R.C. <coughs> Sproul was asked, uh, how do you know that God exists? Well, he said, these Jews. He said, what? How can you say that just by showing us shoes, God exists? Well, I'm not going to go to the shoes, but I'm going to get to my little ball. Okay? This little ball. For example, there's no, nothing there right now. Don't worry about those. And then today, after today, the door was locked. Uh, Pastor Jeremy put some guards around uh, the FBI and the Secret Service. Nobody can get in. Nobody can get in here, put some lasers and some tasers. So if you try to get in, you get, you get shocked. And then next, next Sunday, you came in here, and there's no hurricane, okay? No earthquake, nothing at all, okay? And the next Sunday you came in, voila, you saw a ball. Now, what would you conclude? Did that ball get there by accident or by an agent? Meaning, is that an accidental causation or agent causation? Did, did it just get there or someone put it there? Well, common sense, right? I, I was speaking to a bunch of kids about three weeks ago. They said, well, someone put it there. Six-year-old kids say, if it is there, someone put it there, okay? Well, what about, it's a bigger ball. That one is small, but that one is bigger. Kids, so, so what? Doesn't matter whether it's small, whether it's big, whether it's a little bit bigger, or maybe it's as big as the universe. Doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what size. It doesn't, what shape. It doesn't matter if there's two or three. If it is there, if they are there, there must be someone who must have put it there. Now, you probably think, well, what about UFO? What about alternate universe, something like that? We'll get there later on. So, and this is what we call a cosmological argument. I'm going to go breeze through here. If the universe at the beginning, there must be a cause, the principle of cause and effect. If the ball gets there, someone put it there. If the universe got there, someone must have put it there, or something, if they, they would say UFO or anything, okay? 
but we'll hold on to that. The premise number two is the universe at the beginning. Well, how do you know that the universe at the beginning? How do we know that the universe was not always there? Well, I get my cell phone right there. Now, if I raise my cell phone, it was on. Would you conclude that that cell phone has been on for 10 years? You doubt it, right? Why? The battery is dead. What about a million years? No? No, because it runs out of energy. That's the law of thermodynamics, that everything goes to, to, uh, to decay. The law of entropy. So everything is running down. So if the universe has always been there, by this time it ran out of energy already, a usable energy. But it's still here, so it means there was a beginning. So therefore, the universe must have a cause. But wait, even kids would say, but wait, who made God? Who made this cause? Who caused the cause? Not only little kids ask that. Richard Dawkins asked that, that, hey, but who made God? That's a legitimate question, and they can always ask this question. So we got four options. Only more, more questions. Who made this cause? What is the nature of this cause? For us, for the purposes of today, is the cause the same as the God of the special revelation? So we have four options. The cause was caused by nothing. The cause was caused itself. The cause was caused by another cause. That is caused by another cause. That is caused by another cause. The cause is uncaused, not made. Well, we got some problems with number one. The cause was caused by nothing. If the little ball was, cannot be caused by nothing, what, what more of a bigger ball? What more of the universe? What more of God who created the universe? Cross it out. The cause caused itself. Well, that's kind of a contradiction because God has to exist prior to his existence. It's like you're sitting on a chair and then lifting it yourself 10 feet above the ground. The cause was caused by another cause or caused by another cause and so on to infinity. In philosophy, we call this infinite regression that it just go on forever, to eternity. Well, is it possible? Is that an infinite period of time back to eternity? Well, imagine you're walking from eternity. You've been walking from eternity. Do you think you will get here today? No, because you're coming from eternity. There's no today. But since you're here today, then there must be a beginning of time. Time was created by God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Ah, no. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Actually, John 1.1 mirrors Genesis 1.1, but that's another, another topic. So, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, not only God created matter, he created time. How? How do you know what time it is? You look at the clock. Clock is made of matter, right? Now, before the clock, how, how do people tell about time? Well, rotation of the earth, right? Sunrise, sunset, and then they look at the stars, the constellation changes, so there must be different kind of, maybe we're revol there's revolution around the sun. But what does it entail? It entails existence of matter. So you measure time in, in, in relation to matter. But if there's no matter, if there's no universe, then you can, there's no time. So when God created the universe, space matter, he also created 
time. So there was the beginning. So the only option that cause is uncaused. He is always there. But sir, that's what we've been saying. The universe is always there. Well, no, 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 no. It's two different things. The universe is subject to the second law of thermodynamics. We know that. What we're saying, there is this being who is not subject to any law. There's no decay in God. He's always there. And if they say, well, the universe maybe is not subject to second law of the thermodynamics. He's always there. And he's all-powerful and all-knowing. So, okay, I'll accept that. I'll accept that kind of universe for now. That, that this universe is infinite and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent. We're getting closer to God if they say that. So, back to Romans 1.20, Paul was saying the nature of the cause is self-evident being understood from the effect. I'm going to take my jacket off so I can show my brand new shirt from Gap. <laughs> and drink some water before I faint. So, the cause is uncaused. Is there still tag? No, I think I took it out. <laughs> the uncaused first cause. Since God is uncaused, he must be self-existent, non-contingent, meaning since God is uncaused, nothing is needed to cause or sustain his existence. He doesn't need his creation. He needs, if he needs something from his creation, then he's not God. He doesn't need us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this perfect, infinite relationship of love, infinite love from all eternity doesn't need us. But why did he create us? Because he is good. God is good. That's why he created us. Not to bring glory to him. He doesn't need more glory. He's already infinitely glorious. Special revelation, Acts 17, 24. Just go through. For the sake of time, we'll just uh, reference that. Since God is uncaused, then he must be eternal. What is uncaused has no beginning. That is, he has always existed. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A Psalm of Moses. Since God is uncaused, he must be infinite. Everything that is caused has limitation. The little ball has boundaries. The universe has boundaries. God has no boundaries, has no limit. He's infinite. Job, can you probe the limits of the Almighty? God is simple, meaning he's not composed. He's not composed of parts. If God is not simple, then he's composed. Thus, he must need a composer. But since God is uncaused or uncomposed, then he is simple being. That is, he cannot have parts. Because if he, can, if he is not simple, if he is composed, he can decompose. But God is God. He's not subject to the second law of thermodynamics. A special revelation, it's already there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, God is spirit. No parts, not made up of matter. He created matter out of nothing, ex nihilo. God is immutable. Since God is infinite, comprehending in himself all the plenitude and perfection of all being, he cannot acquire anything new. God cannot say, well, uh, Ramon is a sinner, and then... One day, in 1994, I became a born-again Christian, and he was surprised. This guy, 
I don't know he's going to get a Christian. Now he became a Christian. You think God was surprised about that? That he acquired new knowledge? No. He already know. God is infinite. He's beyond time. So he knows past, present, and future all at the same time. If, you know, and then that's the ring. Five more minutes. I, the Lord, do not change. Okay? So I'm going to quickly go to this one. There's the distinctions of the metaphysical attributes of God and the moral attributes of God. The metaphysical, only God has these attributes. God is uncaused, is simple, infinite, immutable self-existence, and also omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Only God has these. Nobody else. He's the only one. There's also what we call moral attributes. God is love. He gave, he gave it to us. We can love, right? God is personal. We're personal beings. We can be intimate beings. God is just. We, we have that feel of justice when we are the, something right or wrong is done to us. So these are the moral attributes. They, we can relate to that. So this is how I do to the cults. From all that, when they come in, I don't go with the Bible verse, ping pong. I ask these questions. Do you agree with the Bible that God is love? Do you agree with the Bible that God does not need anything from his creation? Do you need with the Bible that God is infinite? Do you believe, do you agree with the Bible that God is eternal, that is, he has no beginning? It's all in the Bible. Because it's, that's why I asked the question, do you agree with the Bible? So, you go through those verses, they would say yes. Do you, then I continue on. Do you agree with the Bible that God is a personal and intimate being? Uh, cults would agree with that. Uh, Muslims probably will not. Because Allah is not a, a personal, intimate God. But for the cults, they would say yes. And my question to the Muslim is that, well, are we not personal, intimate being? How can Allah give it to us if he doesn't have it? Uh, since God is infinite in love, is he infinitely loving? The purpose of this is that God is not only loving or partially loving or partly loving, he's infinitely loving because he is, he is love and infinite. So he must be infinitely loving. And he is eternally loving. It's not just that God created us to feel love and to love. That's not the case. Then, then we are, he is dependent upon us. He is dependent on his creation. But we already saw that God is self-existence and non-contingent. Since God is intimate in love, is he intimately loving? The answer to that is all yes. Now, this is the question that I ask to put a little bit of doubt on their hearts about the Trinity. Without being contingent or dependent to his creation, to whom did God share his love in an infinite, intimate, and personal way from all eternity? God is love, God is infinite, God is eternal, he must be infinitely loving, eternally loving. Who does he share it with? Well, uh, uh, some options. There must be other infinite eternal gods. Well, that's polytheism, but they cannot be infinite. Why? They cannot be more than two infinites? Because if you see two infinites, it means you can distinguish there's one, there's two, 
And if you distinguish, then they are no longer infinite because how can you tell this one is different from this because something is missing from this and something is missing from that. That's why you can distinguish the two. Option two, God must, God must have a loving personal relationship in an infinite, intimate way with nothingness. Meaning, God was just there from all eternity, nothing. But he is love. Then who, who, how can he share that love, that intimate, he's a personal being? Option three, God must have an infinitely and eternally loving interpersonal relationship within himself. There must be more than one person in the Godhead. Now, general revelation does not give us proof that there are three persons in one God. However, general revelation, by way of love, needs to have an infinite relationship with another person, then there must be one, more than one person in the Godhead. Special revelation tells us, the Bible tells us there are three. And these are the, uh, the passages. God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and, and so on. So, as you can see, the general revelation tells us that there's more than one person in the Godhead, but special tells us that there are three, and you can find it from special revelation. And I'm just going to go through that. And remember, uh, where was that now? Jesus becoming man, our problem at the beginning, and then God cannot change attributes. God has these attributes, perfect, infinite, immutable, omniscient, omnipotent, love, eternal. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, triune God is immutable, doesn't change. That's the attributes of God. There is a distinction between attributes and the acts of God. Acts of God are what God does in relation to his creation. Creator, he created the universe. Sustainer, sustaining the universe. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, unchanging. Eternal, personal, loving relationship. Doesn't need us. But if you go to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4, if you just remember that, I'm going to read that. He wants us to participate on that. See, the, you may participate in the divine nature. Isn't that awesome? that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their perfect interpersonal relationship within himself doesn't need us, but inviting us, because we are his son and sons and daughters inviting us on that personal relationship. As a savior, an act of God, he added the human nature to the son to save us. So, the triune God doesn't change. What changed? Well, as an act of God, like creation and sustaining, Savior, being a Savior, God the Son added the human nature. And that human nature has to die to shed the blood as the sacrifice. So that's what the, the, that is what the nature of God is, and that's also the gospel. That is who God is from all eternity, and it's also the Gospel. God didn't change. Triune God didn't change. God the Son became man. With, with Jesus Christ becoming man, there is shedding of the blood. The same thing with this. God 
sacrifice himself. He did not. That, that, the triune God did not sacrifice himself. It's Jesus Christ, the Son. So I'm going to go through that. And this. In closing, two minutes, right? Two minutes. In closing, so by looking at general revelation, we can uh, converse with the cults that there must be more than one person in the Godhead. And also, Jesus has to be God if you are going to go to God. Why? Because remember, God is infinite, right? And He's just. He's infinitely just. If you are trying to do our works, uh, James 2.14 says that uh, without works, faith is dead. Well, we can exegetically actually, uh, we have answer to that from the Bible, but by general revelation, we can ask the cults that, how can your finite works, are you finite or are you infinite? If they say infinite, well, shake their hands, go away, because they're claiming to be God. So they would say finite. Well, how can your finite works satisfy the infinite justice of God? There is no answer to that, unless they believe in a God, uh, they believe in a Jesus Christ who is God. Jesus must be God for his works on the cross to have the infinite value satisfying God's infinite justice. You need Jesus, not only Jesus Christ of the cults or of Islam or the New Age, you need a Jesus who is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So let's pray. Lord, we're going to give, give back to you the year. The prayer of Isaiah that gives us your attributes. That you, Lord, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You will not grow tired or weary. In your understanding, no one can fathom. You give strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. So Lord, may that prayer of Isaiah be our prayer for us today. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for this church. Bless them. Pray for those who are in need of healing, Lord. Those in need of financial blessings. Those in need of, of work. Pray for this church, O oh God. Thank you. We love you, Lord. We praise you in the maximus, priceless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.